Reporter Roz Helderman, it's 9.02 a.m. What's happening right now? I think we're starting to settle in for what we expect is going to be a very long day for us in the newsroom. So how are you going to read 400 pages today? It's teamwork. It's all about teamwork. Divide and conquer. So I'll start by focusing on the conspiracy section. Hi, come into my office. Hi, Shane Harris. I'm sort of looking at what the special counsel has to say about the actual hacking, the Russian intervention, and what we know more about Russian intelligence and how they operated. Here's Carol. Carol, can we grab you for one second? So it's 9.17. Bar's press conference is happening in a few minutes. What are you focused on? Drinking this cappuccino. (laughs) No, I'm... um... From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Darcy. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, April 18th. Today, the Mueller report is finally here. Our reporters break down what we've learned. Good morning, everybody, and thanks for being here this morning. As you know, on March 22nd, Special Counsel Robert Mueller concluded his investigation into matters related to Russian attempts to interfere in our 2016 presidential election, and he submitted his confidential report to me pursuant to department regulations. Attorney General William Barr held a press conference on Thursday about 90 minutes before the release of the Mueller report. He talked about his process on decisions around redactions and distribution of the report, and he gave his own takeaways. Takeaway number one was on conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russians trying to interfere in the 2016 election. After reviewing these contacts, the special counsel did not find any conspiracy to violate U.S. law involving Russian-linked persons and any persons associated with the Trump campaign. The special counsel confirmed that the Russian government sponsored efforts to illegally interfere with the 2016 presidential election, but did not find that the Trump campaign or other Americans colluded in those efforts. Takeaway number two was on obstruction of justice. We heard a few weeks ago that the special counsel concluded that, quote, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. But Attorney General Barr drew a different conclusion. Instead, the report recounts 10 episodes involving the president and discusses potential legal theories for connecting those activities to the elements of an obstruction offense. After carefully reviewing the facts and legal theories outlined in the report, And in consultation with the Office of Legal Counsel and other department lawyers, the Deputy Attorney General and I concluded that the evidence developed by the special counsel is not sufficient to establish that the president committed an obstruction of justice offense. By the time Barr's press conference was over, but before the report was actually out, President Trump was already taking a victory lap. At an event for Wounded Warriors, Trump repeated one of his favorite lines. No collusion, no obstruction. There never was, by the way, and there never will be. And we do have to get to the bottom of these things, I will say. And uh, 
This should never happen. I say this in front of my friends, wounded warriors, and I just call them warriors because we just shook hands and they look great. They look so good and so beautiful. But I say it in front of my friends, this should never happen to another president again. This hoax, this should never happen to another president again. Then, at about 11 a.m., the Mueller report was finally released to the public. And our colleagues in the newsroom started working through the 448-page document. And it just seems like a lot of people with PDFs opened up on their screens. So this is 448 pages. What is happening right now? That is the Mueller report coming off the copier. There are many, many pages <laughs> printed Mueller report. I, How many copies are you trying to print out? This is one. Oh. <laughs> one copy. If you need me, I'll be here. So, Carol Lennick, who are you and what do you do? I'm a reporter on the national desk. I mostly do investigative work that has to do with the president, the White House, and the Russia probe. What part of the Mueller report have you been focusing on today? Obstruction, obstruction, obstruction. We are absolutely riveted by the details that Mueller provides in this interesting narrative that he's woven When you flip to this particular moment in time, the appointment of the special counsel on May 17th, it's very dramatic. The president is furious. He had been screaming, according to this document, at his White House counsel, how could you let my attorney general recuse? Now I'm in this horrible situation where someone I don't trust is in charge of investigating me and my team. He is talking about how Jeff Sessions, his attorney general, has failed him, calling him weak. Are we allowed to say expletives on this show? The details of what unfolds are essentially the president says, I'm fucked. This is going to ruin my presidency. But then Attorney General William Barr said that he concludes that there was no obstruction of justice. But the report actually has a significant part about that question of obstruction and a lot of incidents that are somewhat questionable. Right. And and as we were racing to read all the details to find out what's new, what you find is that he found plenty of evidence of things he believed could have risen to the level of criminally obstructing an investigation. He very seriously disagrees with the president's lawyers who said, you have no business investigating the president. His broad powers allow him to do whatever he wants without threat of criminal investigation or prosecution. Mueller says no. In a couple of instances, he says, look, we didn't reach a decision about whether or not we should accuse him of obstruction. But these are the incidences that Congress should look at as they decide how to handle this president. And what are those incidents? There's, of course, this situation where the president orders White House counsel Don McGahn to fire the special counsel, Robert Mueller, in June. Um, McGahn is so upset. He's getting calls at home from the president. He's so upset. He starts to pack up his things as if he's going to leave. That one we knew about, but there's another incident we didn't know about in which he tells Corey Lewandowski, a close advisor of his, to take a letter over to Sessions um, and tell him how to influence the investigation or how to steer the investigation, even though Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, is recused from the probe. These are episodes in which if you were a mob capo, a boss, 
you would be charged with obstruction. So then why was the special counsel not sure about whether this actually was obstruction? So there are two things that Mueller describes in very nerdy and granular detail. One, there were complications with the facts, and there were complications with the law. Let's start with law. The Department of Justice's policy is you cannot charge a sitting president. So Mueller is already in a box of not being able, probably in his own mind, to bring a prosecution if he thought he could prove it to a jury. So why should he reach a conclusion about accusing the president of criminal conduct? Then there's the complications of facts. Some of the president's actions are complicated by the fact that he does them in public view. He tweets, hey, by the way, this is the story. Everybody stick to it. He doesn't exactly say that, but it's a kind of a threatening tweet about how here are the facts and everybody better see them. Again, if if you were trying to thwart a criminal probe and get everybody to sing from the same song and shape your story, you probably wouldn't do it by public tweet. So the idea is that the fact that he was saying these things publicly, that he's just blowing off steam and not actually trying to bring down an investigation. In some instances. There's another instance where Mueller says, look, he said all these tweets at Paul Manafort telling everybody what a great guy he was. Mueller's conclusion after looking at all of those conversations that Trump sort of has with the American people is that Trump was trying to corruptly convince Manafort not to cooperate with investigators. Hmm. He didn't accuse the president of obstruction, but he said this rose to the level that he considered to show this was the president's goal. But then Attorney General Barr this morning says that the White House, quote, fully cooperated with the special counsel's investigation. And that seems pretty radically at odds with what's described in the Mueller report. The White House did cooperate extensively in the beginning of this probe in hopes of ending it quickly. They turned over records. They made witnesses available. The witnesses who are accused of lying were accused of lying before the special counsel was appointed. So in terms of what was outlined in the report, is that enough that Congress might take this up and actually pursue an impeachment or that they're that they would think that there is enough evidence that show that the president did something wrong? That's up to Congress. But what I see in the 10 episodes of obstruction that Mueller recounts is he is waving a red flag in front of a handful of them and saying this rises to the level that you should think about your role and the, the remedy under the Constitution, which is the Congress um, fixes misconduct and poor conduct of a, of a president by taking some action. Could be censure, could be impeachment proceedings, could be a full-blown investigation to pull forward the witnesses that Mueller actually didn't get to interview. But I think that that's the message Mueller is passing to them. It's now on you. To decide. And the fact that this is something that Congress could and maybe should be looking at, that was explicitly said in the report. Was that surprising to you? Not to me, but that is because I've been looking at this for so long. Of course, anything Mueller says explicitly is interesting because he's been silent for 20 some months. But we have known and have focused a lot here at the Washington Post on this team on the policy, which is you cannot prosecute a sitting president. Mueller told Trump's lawyers 
I'm not going to prosecute your guy. I'm going to follow the the policy. So what is the policy under and what is the rubric of the Constitution putting in, in Congress's lap? As someone who's been covering this for quite a while now, did any of what you read in the report surprise you or does it mostly confirm things that you already knew? I love knowing the conversations that were happening in real time behind the closed door. Um, You know, the president saying, you know, you screwed me, Jeff. The president screaming, saying, you know, why can't I interfere or ask about investigations? You think Jack didn't call Bobby, referring to the Kennedys? I love hearing the, the words of the individuals. I don't feel that I learned absolutely from whole cloth a new narrative of how the president operates. Carol, thank you so much. Of course. No, it might not be two copies. It's two sections. Well, because it's two volumes. Right. So, okay. Well, so, this is volume two, two. so it's probably still it's going. It's still going. All right. <laughs> um, do you want to sound check or do we sound good? You're good. So Shane Harris, you cover national security and intelligence. And for the Mueller report, you are focusing on Russian hacking and Russian intervention in the election. What do we know that's new about that? So there's not a lot that's new that we've learned in terms of what the Russians did to disrupt the election. We know that they had this troll farm that was manufacturing divisive social media called the Internet Research Agency. We know that Russian hackers working for military intelligence were stealing emails from Democrats and ultimately publishing them. But what we're finding is more sort of the granular detail and the specifics around that, how they applied their trade, um, how they decided going about where to target, and also, interestingly, you know, contacts that they were having with people in the Trump world, either by content that the Internet Research Agency was putting out that members of the Trump campaign were promoting via social media or contacts that Russians were having with Trump surrogates in the United States. Those people didn't necessarily know they were talking to a Russian on the other end, but we're getting kind of the narrative of how this played out from beginning all the way up to the election and even beyond with some of those efforts. What do we know about what Russians were doing on social media to affect the election? Well, the social media piece consists largely of this campaign developed by the Internet Research Agency or the IRA, this troll farm, which was, as the special counsel put it, uh, kind of churning out social media content, in his words, designed to provoke and amplify political and social discord in the United States. So this is about setting up pages and groups that speak to really divisive issues on race and other pop-button political issues of the moment and was attracting followers even beginning in 2014 and building up likes and adherence to these pages. Interestingly, it also, the investigation found that on many occasions, members and surrogates of the Trump campaign were promoting a lot of these pages and groups typically by linking or retweeting or other kinds of methods of reposting, looking at going for the pro-Trump content and the anti-Clinton content. And he actually identifies how, uh, in one case, a single Twitter account called 10GOP, which purported to represent Tennessee Republicans, but actually operated on behalf of the Internet Research Agency, was retweeted by Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, Kellyanne Conway, 
Brad Parscale, who ran the digital operations for the campaign, and Michael Flynn, who became the national security advisor. So that's the social media campaign. But then there's this whole issue of the email hacks. What more do we know about that because of the Mueller report? What we've learned more about that is there was intense interest on the part of the Trump campaign in WikiLeaks uh, and a desire to understand what was coming, when that information might be released. Um, We've known already that there were some interactions between the campaign and WikiLeaks. For instance, Twitter direct messages exchanged between Trump Jr. and and WikiLeaks. But this doesn't add any new revelations in terms of a kind of conspiracy or coordination, but it helps us understand internally that there was a great deal of interest in these disseminations and when they were coming and the damage that they might do to the Clinton campaign. So the president during the campaign talked a lot about Hillary Clinton's email server and the quote-unquote missing emails, did they, did the campaign make any efforts to find those emails? Yes, they did. And this is a really interesting revelation in the report. After President Trump in July made that comment of Russia, if you're listening, I hope you can find the 30,000 emails, Michael Flynn, who was then a national security advisor on the campaign, got in touch with two Republican operatives, a woman named Barbara Ledeen, who was a longtime Senate staffer, and a man named Peter Smith, who was an old Republican operative, both of whom had been interested in that very question of could you in fact find Hillary Clinton's missing emails. Ledeen actually some months earlier had been mounting her own operation to find it, and Smith went on to start his own effort, privately funded, to try and get in touch with people he believed were Russian hackers who had obtained the emails. Interestingly, what Flynn told the special counsel is that this question of whether or not Hillary Clinton's emails could be obtained was something that Trump had been intensely interested in throughout the campaign, even before he said, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you can find them. So Flynn, as he tells the special counsel, reaches out to these people, Ledeen and Smith, who are sort of working in that space already on their own. Uh, And interestingly, Smith goes out, raises thousands and thousands of dollars, forms a company to try and, you know, get at this whole question of uh, whether you can find the emails. Ledeen, separately, Barbara Ledeen, believes that she may have found a trove of these emails. She comes to Smith and says, hey, maybe these are it. Smith decides that he wants to have some kind of technical analysis done on them. Uh, And lo and behold, who shows up to pay for it? Eric Prince, uh, the former founder of Blackwater, the Trump supporter, uh, and the brother to the now education secretary, Betsy DeVos. So Prince comes in, pays for these technical advisors to look at the emails, decide whether they're authentic. Ultimately, the team decides that they're not. Um, uh, But what's so interesting about this is that Flynn contacted Smith and Ledeen in the first place, and Smith was actually keeping Flynn and another campaign aide, the co-chairman Sam Clovis, aware of his progress as they went. I had written about this a couple of years ago and broke the story that Peter Smith was up to this. What we did not know, though, is that separately Trump had been obsessed with this idea and that Flynn, acting in his campaign capacity, reached out to these people and became aware of what they were doing. The special counsel did not establish that Many members of the Trump campaign directed those efforts. And this is something that was separate from what the Russians were doing uh, on hacking emails or social media exploitation. This is just a 
private effort that's going on by Americans to try and get in touch with Russians to get her emails, which they then planned to publicize. Uh, and not only did the Trump campaign know about it, but apparently President Trump was intensely interested in exactly that objective. So obviously this is something that you've been covering for a couple of years. Are you surprised at what you're reading? Does this kind of confirm what you already understood about about what's been going on? It I think it generally does confirm a lot of what we understood. There obviously are new details and new revelations. But I think that to see it all laid out in this narrative fashion, hundreds of pages, dozens and dozens of interviews, citations, footnotes, references to the investigation, it's it's very powerful. And I think it does paint a picture. To have it all here in one place is something we've just never had. The two and a half years that we've all been covering this, these revelations have come out as fragments from different categories, you know, collusion, obstruction. They've all come out in non-chronological order. It's kind of a jumble of pieces that are just spilling out. And here is essentially the puzzle put together as a picture. That's new, and that's very exciting to see, frankly. Shane, thank you so much. You're welcome. Roz Helderman, uh, you are a political investigative reporter, and that means that for the last couple of years, you've been looking at the question of criminal conspiracy. And that was a question that was addressed today in the Mueller report. And I think what's interesting is that it, the report itself basically defined what their terms were for conspiracy and explained what they were looking for. Yeah. So they walked through that, you know, they were actually looking for is there evidence of laws being violated? So in terms of conspiracy, they basically said they needed to find an agreement, a tacit or express agreement between someone associated with the Trump campaign and a Russian government official or person to break the law, to interfere in the election in some way. And so they did this really detailed analysis of all these contacts that go on. But they say that they couldn't establish that agreement, essentially. They couldn't establish an actual conspiracy, knowing, willing conspiracy uh, between the Trump campaign and Russia. And they also talked about some other laws they analyzed, campaign finance laws, the Foreign Agent Registration Act, and whether they could make a case of any of those being violated. And they ultimately said that other than the couple of cases they've already actually charged, they could not. What were some of those details about contacts between the Trump campaign and Russia that we didn't previously know about? Yeah, I mean, I was really struck by the fact that, you know, over sort of two years of public reporting, it has become clear that there was this kind of almost constant you know, flood of contact requests from Russia to people associated with the Trump campaign, important people, unimportant people, just over and over again. And so certainly they detailed a lot that we already knew about, but they also detailed some brand new examples that we just had never heard about before. There was a New York City banker who got a call or tried to get a call with uh, the Trump, uh, I think with Trump's assistant uh, through Mark Burnett. Uh, and he said that he had high-level Kremlin contacts and he wanted 
wanted to invite Trump to go to to Russia to attend this economic conference. There's actually several attempts to get Trump to go to this economic conference. And there's quite a few emails. The banker wants to meet with Trump to talk about it. At one point, someone offers him a meeting with Eric or Donald Trump Jr., but it never happened. Uh, There's another instance where a fashion designer contact of Ivanka reaches out to try to invite Trump to go to Russia on behalf of a Russian government official. They decline. The campaign declines. But then a couple of months later, the uh, Russian deputy prime minister emails Rona Graf himself to again invite Donald Trump to go to this economic forum in Russia during the campaign. But a lot of these things sort of seem like weird ships passing in the night. The Trump folks seem interested. Rona sends a really nice note to the deputy prime minister saying that, you know, if only he wasn't so busy, he would really like to do this. But it didn't actually happen. And then we we heard more information about that meeting with Paul Manafort. What did what did we learn about that? Yeah, so there's a there's quite a bit of new information about Paul Manafort and his interactions with this Russian employee Konstantin Kalimnik, who the FBI thinks was tied to Russian intelligence. And we've reported a lot on this so far. Yeah, we've we've reported quite a bit about this, but just really in depth emails that like as soon as Paul Manafort joined the campaign, he was instructing uh, Kalimnik to reach out to all these Russian and Ukrainian people to share polling data, to talk about Paul Manafort's role in the campaign, to try to find ways that Paul Manafort could make money off of this campaign. And then we learn that when Kalimnik comes to the United States in August of 2016, this is a meeting we've written about before. They meet at the Grand Havana Club in New York City, a cigar bar, that his express reason for coming is to present a peace plan for Ukraine uh, that Paul Manafort apparently told the special counsel's office. He understood that this was a Russian back channel and he understood that Donald Trump's you know, assent would be necessary to this plan if he were elected. So this was basically a a policy proposal. It's it's what Russia wanted. You know, they're on the one hand, they're interfering in the campaign. And here's an example of Paul Manafort, the chairman of the campaign, getting a presentation of what they actually wanted. But again, they did not find that they could charge Paul Manafort or anyone else with kind of entering into an agreement to, you know, actually knowingly accept Russia's help in exchange for for giving them what they wanted after the election. That there wasn't a sense of a quid pro quo here. Well, I think I think the, the, the problem was the sort of knowing agreement at the front end. I know that what I am doing is participating in a Russian effort to interfere in the campaign. So this report was pretty lightly redacted, I would say, but some of the redactions, uh, they, were, they were all annotated by, um, by DOJ. And some of the redactions indicated that that information couldn't be released because it's part of an ongoing matter. There are other investigations happening right now related to these same questions. What's the status on those? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. There's actually an appendix that actually walks through 14 separate investigations that the special counsel's office said they referred to other offices as a result of of what they did. And of the 14, only two were unredacted. All 12 others were redacted as being part of ongoing investigations. So one was Michael Cohen. We know that they referred things about Michael Cohen's personal finances and the campaign finance violations involving the the two women. They referred that to New York prosecutors. And another one was uh, Greg Craig, the uh, Obama White House counsel who was just charged in recent days with uh, acting as an unregistered or lying about acting as an unregistered foreign agent in Ukraine. But 12 other investigations are still ongoing, apparently. 
Roz, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. The Mueller report, incomplete because part of it is redacted. Even in its incomplete form, however, the Mueller report outlines disturbing evidence that President Trump engaged in obstruction of justice and other misconduct. On Thursday afternoon, House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler told reporters that impeachment proceedings are possible. That's one possibility. There are, there are others. We, see, we obviously have to get to the bottom of what happened and uh, uh, take whatever action the, seems necessary at that time. It's too early to reach those conclusions. Nadler and other congressional Democrats said they believe Mueller's report appears to undercut Attorney General Barr. Barr is set to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee on May 1st. One more thing. Since we started this podcast 100 episodes ago, we've had a lot of questions about the Post Reports theme song, specifically about the bell, which technically is a triangle. A triangle that has been in the Washington Post newsroom for a very long time. Hello? Hi, this is Martine Powers. I'm calling from The Post. How are you? Okay. I'm wondering if you can actually just introduce yourself. I'm Len Downey, or Leonard Downey Jr. in the long form. I uh, started at The Post as a summer intern in 1964 and retired as executive editor in 2008. So you spent your entire career at The Post? Yes, 44 years. The thing about the bell is that it rings in the newsroom twice a day once in the morning and once in the afternoon. It announces the two daily news meetings. And when it rings, a bunch of people get up from their desks and go into a big conference room. But if you ask around, no one really knows where the tradition of the bell came from. Why are there these meetings that happen twice a day? For the sake of the senior editors, and particularly whoever's running the newspaper that day, they need to know what's going on. They need to know what stories are being offered for the front page so that decisions can be made about how to play things. And then the second meeting was to then meet and say, is this the front page we want to have? And I would have people go around the table and they would defend the stories that they have on the front page. They'd attack other people's stories that they didn't (laughs) think belonged on the front page and give me an opportunity to just have a sense of the newspaper from that meeting. Well, so we're trying to figure out what the origin story is of the triangle. People tend to assume that this was like a Ben Bradley idea. Probably was a Ben Bradley idea. It certainly was during his time. As best I can recall, in 1971, when the Pentagon Papers was done, we were still in the old newsroom on L Street, which is the newsroom that's portrayed in the movie The Post. In 1972, for Watergate, exactly a year later, it was a Watergate break, and we were in the new newsroom. When the new building was built, it was so big, you couldn't shout across it. You couldn't even see each other. So somebody had the idea of using the, of a triangle, and so we would ring the triangle right in front of the intercom on the news desk. So it would ring twice a day, and it was usually rung by 
the person who was running the news desk. I was usually sitting on the news desk when the bell was rung, and different news editors would ring the bell, and we would make comments. Oh, that was really terrible. Oh, that was really beautiful. I don't think you ought to do that again. I think you ought to do it every day. You know, that sort of thing. Occasionally, they would give the honor of ringing the bell to somebody else for whatever purpose. They're actually, they're going to let me ring the bell this afternoon. Good, good luck. Hello. I'm Scott Vance, Deputy Managing Editor of The Post. Where are we right now? We're in the hub, uh, which is kind of the center of the newsroom. And we're standing next to the triangle (laughs) that we use to call people to meetings. Which is so bizarre that there's this triangle that is the rallying force behind our big meetings twice a day. It is very weird, largely because the meetings take place at the same time every day. (laughs) So you'd think people would know when to show up. But the bell tradition started when there was no set time for the meetings. Hmm. Do you ever get requests from people to, like as a a special gift that they get to ring the bell on their birthday or something? We do, and we grant those requests. Sometimes (laughs) it works out well, sometimes it doesn't. I'm very nervous. I feel like my heart is pounding. I know this is ridiculous, but it feels very high stakes. You're going to do great. All right. <laughs> Thank you, First Scott. thing we do is turn on the intercom. Take this. Hold this in your one hand. And then I advise that you don't do the old chuck wagon style uh-huh. because that leads to disaster. Ah. I did it. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That was exciting. <laughs> That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can find a lot more about today's news, including a link to a fully annotated version of the Mueller report, at our website, postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. <laughs> 